Many people ask Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And 2,000 years later, many more are still asking this question. Over these 2,000 years, many Christians have answered this question by positing a clear division between faith and works, or faith and the law, based supposedly on statements by St. Paul in his New Testament letters, with Abraham as a model for all men of faith. Many non-Catholic Christians still presume that Catholics believe that they are saved by works, but is this true? And was Abraham a model of faith without works? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host of this program. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and uh, we welcome you to the program, and we love to have you connect with us on, on the web at deepinscripture.com, or you can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We'd like to, every week on this program, to begin with an email that we've received, and we'd love to hear from you, questions about either something we've studied or just Scripture in general, and how Scripture can lead us to a deeper walk with Christ. And we can also uh, connect with us through Facebook, the CH Network Facebook page, or through Twitter at CH Network. Ken, welcome today to Deep in Scripture. Thank you, Marcus. It's good to be back. Uh, and I'm excited about our text today. We, as I mentioned in the opening, we're going to examine this uh, supposed uh, battle between faith and works that is so often posed uh, today by Christians, and it's presumed I mean, wouldn't you say, Ken, that almost every single Christian presumes uh, that there is a battle between this idea of faith in Christ and any kind of works, especially in the area of justification? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, that's an unfortunate fact, but it is true. And sometimes it even goes to the extreme where people say that you don't even have to live as a Christian in order to be a Christian. Now, that's pretty extreme. And even most Protestant Christians would reject that idea, thankfully. Uh, but on the other hand, there has always been this uh, tension between saying, well, am I saved by grace, or am I saved by grace plus works, or whatever it is. And I think in, in all of this uh, back and forth, uh, the Catholics are very badly misunderstood. So right. maybe we can clarify that for people today a little bit. Yeah, and the last time I visited my Protestant seminary, where I graduated uh, many decades ago. Uh, I happened to be there during the installation of the new president of my seminary, and I heard his acceptance sermon in the chapel, which was quite full, and I was you know, there now as a Catholic convert listening, and in his homily, he's a world-renowned biblical scholar, particularly Old Testament scholar, and in his Homily, he said to this evangelical audience, you know, that he was glad to now be a president of this evangelical seminary that believed through salvation by grace, through faith, and not through works as our Catholic brothers and sisters believe. <laughs> and I wanted to stand yeah. up and scream because here we have the president of this well-known evangelical seminary, himself world-renowned, and he's not done his homework. Because yeah, the scriptures exactly. we're going to look at today, we're going to show that most of the presumptions about the dichotomy between faith and works are based on a misunderstanding 
a misinterpretation of Scripture, and particularly of St. Paul, and his use of Abraham as a model of faith. Uh, And once people get a grid in their mind of how to understand this, then they go to that with Scripture and can misinterpret it, and so we'd like to examine that today, Kent. But before we do that, as I said, I'd like to um, have us discuss an email that we received. We received a nice email from Mary, and she says, Over the years, as you have grown deeper in Scripture and deeper in Christ, have your favorite scriptures changed? And what is your favorite scripture now? And she writes, In Christ Mary. And I love that email, Ken, because uh, I kind of feel Mary gets it. You, you know, in other words, that a scripture isn't a one-time read it, I've arrived, or even our, our walk with Christ, I accept him as my Lord and Savior, I've arrived, that it's a lifelong journey of deeper in Christ, deeper in scripture. And as it seems she's experienced, the more you read and love the word of God, that not only do you grow closer in Christ, but you find that your favorite scriptures change over mm-hmm. the years mm-hmm. as you grow in Christ. Yeah, well, it's it, that that is absolutely true, and there've been uh, there've been a number of verses that have come into my awareness uh, since being a Catholic that I didn't have before. I always think if I think on your tombstone, Marcus, there's going to be a sign that says verses I never saw, (laughs) (laughs) because that's that's a famous phrase, I think, that everybody associates with you. But it's a good phrase, because um, we do know that we had uh, this experience of just glossing over texts of the Bible uh, as Protestants that we never looked at, like, you know, John 6 was easy to gloss over, or John 19 about Mary and John at the foot of the cross, which is one that really sticks out to me. However, there's also, I I would say for me, uh, a second category or a slightly different category, and that is verses I knew and liked and loved, but now have a deeper meaning for me because I'm Catholic. And these are the verses for, these are like Psalm 42, Psalm 84, Psalm 86, uh, Psalm 25. All of these psalms in one way or another emphasize uh, the longing that the child of God has to be with God eventually. So like in Psalm 42, you know, it begins with, as the deer uh, pants after the brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. And, you know, my, my, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord. Well, that, that kind of language is the language of wanting to be in union with God. Well, I remember preaching a sermon on Psalm 84, which has very similar language, years ago. But what I've come to understand is how, <clears throat> how my previous understanding as a Protestant was so limited precisely because I viewed salvation or justification as a legal transaction, which was once done and stamped and you know approved and you're going to heaven. Whereas in the Catholic understanding, our whole life is a life of journey, of pilgrimage to God, which <clears throat> is going to end, as those Psalms indicate, it's going to end in union with God. So these are verses that have, I would say, been enriched in their meaning for me because I have a different frame of understanding that I'm looking at it through now. Oh, Ken, it uh, directly parallels my own thinking. Uh, I've been a student of Scripture now for uh, 
seriously for over 40 years. Um, I'm not saying I'm a scholar. You're the scholar, Ken, not me. Um, yeah. I'm just a humble football player trying to keep from looking like a football. And uh, <laughs> But um, by the mercy of God, he opened my heart to a love for Scripture way back when, and a day hasn't gone by when, again, by grace. And my favorite Scriptures have changed over the years as I've been changed. And the best way I can describe it, which is going to feed a little bit of how I'm going to look at the passage we're going to look at today, is that Scripture and the early church fathers and then throughout the last 2,000 years of the writers of the church seem to emphasize that our spiritual journey involves at least three stages. And we see this in the New Testament writings and it's important to understand these three stages, to understand Scripture, to understand our our walk with Christ, to understand how we look in face-to-face with God. And these three stages are, the first stage is believing in God and, and, and accepting Him, and then seeing Him as our Lord, and then through baptism and faith, becoming a part of His family. I mean, that's the very first stage. And But once we've all entered into his presence, we believe in God, and now we're sitting around drinking coffee, and we all believe in God. Well, now what? Do we believe yeah. more in God? I mean, is that what it's all about? And we see Scripture calls us to live that out in holiness. Uh, what difference does it make? And so, therefore, we see the whole second half of Ephesians is about living a different life, putting off the old, putting on the new, being different, being Christ-like, uh, living the Ten Commandments, living a holy life. But then we see scriptures calling us to a deeper walk with Christ, a third stage, which is really loving, changing our internal attitudes, um, loving as Christ loved us. And so you see scriptures that deal with the three stages. There are scriptures that deal with believing in God, or as Christ would say, believe in me as you believe in the Father. The whole Gospel of John is that you might believe. It's all about the first stage. But then we see scriptures, entire books that are about the second stage, living in holiness, um, getting rid of bad lifestyles, uh, no longer uh, committing adultery, no longer lying, no longer stealing. That's... But then we see scriptures that deal with loving, sacrifice, humility, change of heart. And as we're going to get into in today's text, if you misunderstand these stages, then you can get locked in, for example, to that faith is only about faith alone. It's just the first stage. And if you equate works with stages two and three, holiness and loving— Then you end up with an entirely different Christianity that ends up with, well, as long as I've done a few things, I'm right with God. My point, and this is just to start with that, Ken, but my point is, in answer to the email, that by God's grace, I've moved in those stages. You know, Mm -hmm. it's been, I've believed by God's grace in the reality of God for many, many years. And by his grace and mercy, I think I've cleaned up my act a little bit. And what I'm finding (laughs) as I grow older that uh, that the importance of love and how we treat our neighbor is really what's c- the corner of everything. John of the Cross once said, in the end of life, it's how we've loved mm-hmm. that counts. And Absolutely. 
And mm. so for the early days of my journey, you know, John 3.16 was one of the most important verses, for God so loved the world, you know, and that's about the first stage, mm. that if you believe in him, you're safe. And then it was other verses that deal with, uh, you know, cleaning up our acts. And I think as I get older, uh, the one verse, Ken, that I find right now is a verse that I probably recite every single day. It's a verse you and I have known for years and years and years. And that is Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That verse is so important. Uh, you know, the reason that's important to me is when I look how I'm called to love and how poorly I love, this verse keeps me going. You know, have no anxiety about anything, uh, but with thanksgiving. In other words, you're recognizing that everything you have is of God, that turn to prayer to God, and that peace that we want will be a gift. That's really important. Um and that's become one of my favorite verses, Ken. And I know it's one that you and I have both known for years. And it certainly accords with great spiritual writers like St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Philip Neri and those others who said that one of the sure signs of being led of God, for example, in a particular endeavor, is the peace of heart that comes with your, your uh, prayer and your decision. Well, I think the... Both of our perspectives on answering this email draw us into the text for today because this question of faith versus works could require many programs, Ken, and maybe sometime in the future we can just spend a lot of weeks going through Galatians or Romans mm -hmm. as an extended study. But this question of faith and works uh, was a good one for us to deal with today. And as our text, we're going to look at maybe the text that most of most Christians who want to pose this battle between faith and works, it's this text and its context. Mm -hmm. And let me read it, Ken, and if you would, bring us into this. And, and what is the distinction here? I'm reading from Galatians chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 6, which bring us into Abraham as a model. It does begin us with a conundrum verse, Ken, which I, I, just, I just love verse 1 which to me is the unanswered mystery of what Paul's talking about in verse 1. But then he gets into from there this distinction between works of the law on the one hand and hearing with faith on the other. Let me read. O faith, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Thus Abraham believed a God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Ken, uh, I'll throw you a bit of a curve here. 
when you were a Presbyterian pastor and you were in your pulpit preaching on this passage, what was your interpretation? <laughs> it's been a long time, but I think what I, <laughs> I think what I said was uh, what you implied earlier, and that is that uh, there is a clear distinction. So the Presbyterians would have said, in accord with Luther and Calvin and the Reformers, between justification and sanctification. So that these people, their problem is that they're trying to, they've been justified by faith alone, and now they're trying to add works to that. And so I would have seen Galatians as being this great manifesto of Paul calling people back to justification by faith alone. Um, that's not the way I see it now, but that's that was the way I would have seen it then. And I, what gets me, and that's exactly where I would have been, Ken, though I'm, I'm surely not as profound as you might have done from the pulpit, but um, uh, I, what I didn't see in that context um, is that Paul, in the very letter, in chapter 5 of Galatians, puts the distinction between living a life of unholiness and a life of holiness as a necessity of walking in the Spirit. You see, so he requires, beginning with verse 13 on, about living holy lives as opposed to doing works of the flesh, you're going to walk by the Spirit. My point being that back when we would have preached this idea of faith versus works, Ken, I'm guessing that many well-meaning Christians include in the idea of works this necessity of being good as well as being loving. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's true. And and those who would say that are what they're um, what they're doing implicitly, and perhaps sometimes even unconsciously in their minds, is they're they're equating um, things that Christ wants us to do, like live in holiness and so forth, as a good work, you know, which is excluded by Paul as being a way of salvation uh, in this text. Um, I think I think you're right. I think and I think it really goes back to I'm glad you pointed us to chapter five. It's important because the question we have to answer today for our, for our audience, Marcus, is well, what does it mean by works of the law and what does it mean by the hearing of faith? Because um if we don't understand what he means by the works of the law, we're we're gonna get it wrong. And I think that was one of the fatal mistakes that, that Martin Luther made. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But just to get a sense of, of where this all is um, fits in to the larger context, you know, the we don't know exactly when the uh, when Galatians was written. Probably around 54, 55 A.D., uh, when Paul is writing back to the Galatian church, he's preached there. It's recorded in Acts that he was there, and suddenly he hears about this great problem. And what is the great problem? Well, it's it's already mentioned for us in chapter 1 and verse 6 when he says, I'm amazed that, you of, that you're departing from the one who's called you unto another gospel. Now, you and I, along with many other Reformed 
preachers would have said, the other gospel is the gospel of works, the gospel of, of trying to earn our way to salvation, and that's the, that's the Achilles heel of Roman Catholicism. And, and to a certain extent, um, if a person interprets um, works as uh, the Jewish uh, ceremonial works of the law, yeah. In the sense yeah. that what what was identified in Acts as the Judaizers, mm-hmm. um, then then to a certain extent that's true. In other words, this this false yeah, gospel in Galatians one were people trying to reintroduce circumcision right. as a necessity. Uh, in other words, the way to be right with God is to be circumcised. The way to be right with God is to do these certain days of celebration. The way to be right with God is that that's what's important as opposed to faith. And it's, it's to realize that probably what was happening in Galatia was that you had these you had Jews coming in and say, Paul taught you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's really good. But in order to be saved, you need more. You need the ceremonial law. You need all of these details. And circumcision was the sign of that. In other words, you Gentiles need to be circumcised. Now, if in order to give support, textual support to your what you've said, Marcus, I think it's important to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It was for freedom that Christ set us free, Paul says. This is chapter 5, verse 1. Stand therefore and do not be yoked, uh, not be joined to a yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? Look, I, Paul, say that if you are circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, what does he mean? Well, in other words, you're trying to go back to salvation by uh, by the keeping of the ceremonial law, all of those things which even the Jews and ultimately couldn't be saved by because all of that Old Testament economy was pointing forward to Christ as the Messiah and the Savior. So Paul is calling them back to, in a sense, the foundation, which we should never leave, the foundation that justification is by faith. And this is one of the distinctions that is so important. Catholics do believe in justification by faith, but they don't believe in justification by faith alone. They believe it's faith that grows into hope and hope into love, that becomes perfect, that becomes complete. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 3.3. Do you expect to be uh, made complete? Your translation was a little different, I think. But basically, do you expect to be perfected? by by anything other than the spirit that you received through faith. So, anyway, go ahead. I was going to say that this problem that Paul's addressing here is not new at all. Um, because uh, we find in the Psalms, which, as you mentioned earlier, you've really come to love, that all throughout the Psalms, God was communicating to the, through the psalmist to his people that they were imbalanced in their desire to grow close to him. Mm-hmm. And that um, he would say, for example, um, uh, you know, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he goat from your fields. He goes on and on. Because, what's the problem? Is he, is he drawing a distinction 
between sacrifices and a purity of heart so that you get rid of sacrifices so I have a purity of heart? Or was he saying that without a purity of heart, your sacrifices are meaningless? That was mm-hmm. his point. He wasn't saying get rid of a sacrificial system. He was saying no. that, that purely sacrifice without mm-hmm. changes of heart are meaningless. So in other words, purely circumcising your children mm-hmm. without holiness and, yeah. and love and a change of heart are empty ritual, are mere works of the law. And if you think by doing these things, you somehow obligate God to therefore save you, you've totally missed the point of why God gave those in the first place. Well, that's exactly right. I think that that what Paul is is arguing here for is really is what was exactly the case with the Jews, with the Israelites, when he brought them out of Egypt. Now, did he bring them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of the bondage of Pharaoh, because they were good people? Well, he tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, explicitly the opposite. God did not save you because you were greater than other nations. He saved you because he loved your forefathers and he promised them that he would save their descendants after them. In other words, the the exodus from Egypt was an act of grace, of pure grace that God gave. The law then that he gave was to learn how to live in grace, in that state of grace as a child of Israel, as a son or daughter of God. So that's what the law was for, but what happened was in the history of Judaism is that the law became not a means to God, but an end in itself. And that's what our Lord, and that's what Paul is fighting against, is the idea that the law is somehow the ticket to heaven when it's always really been by grace. We're going to take a break in a bit, Ken, but what I'd like to do when we come back is I'd like you to address the issue of Luther. It seems to me, as I described earlier in these three stages, believing, holiness, and loving, this journey, that Luther got us messed up because he had such a problem with stage two, holiness, that he redefined stage one in a new understanding of faith alone, which therefore, in essence, negated stages two of holiness and three of, of loving, and left a bazillion Christians stuck in stage one, trying to understand that it's all only about faith in God and nothing else is necessary for salvation. We'll discuss that when we get back. See you in a bit. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home. 
Join Marcus as he welcomes former Presbyterian Mike Carlton to the show. See what led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Well, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, with Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, specifically this addressing the issue of faith versus works, which you, anywhere on the television, radio, if you turn to almost any uh, evangelist, you'll hear that posed many modern evangelization programs are based on the presumption that most people think they are saved by their works, and uh, but true salvation comes through only faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, from a Catholic perspective, we would essentially agree with that, but we've got to make sure we understand what we're saying in those words. Ken, before the break, I wanted to draw you into the discussion of Luther and how Luther himself, well-meaning, uh, we believe, uh, even, I believe, not intending to cause the disruption that came as a result of that, but really in many ways, it came from his own personal struggles of going deeper with, into Christ. And, and as I posed it earlier, if we see the journey in these three stages, <clears throat> um, that Luther was really having a problem with stage two, which was living out holiness, uh, living out um uh, growing uh, to uh, turn from sin, and he struggled with that. And in mm -hmm. essence, I mean, am I right in saying that in essence what he did was to redefine the spiritual journey? In, in essence, uh, saying that stages two and stages three are not directly necessary for salvation. All that is necessary is the step one, which is faith in Christ and that's mm -hmm. because of the depravity of the will is the way he defined it. In other words, our total inability to do anything to draw us close to God basically downgraded steps two and three of holiness and loving and left Christianity with this faith alone. And, and of course, he, we've got mm -hmm. Luther's supposed bold statement in which he could say that he could commit adultery 10,000 times in one day and not lose his salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of state the conclusion and give you the reasons. I, I really think that I feel very um, badly, I guess is the word for Luther. I feel sorry for him because I can understand his struggle that he was having. It was a very difficult struggle psychologically, emotionally. But um, I can't agree with the solution that he came up with to that problem. And we all have that experience of being sympathetic towards someone's struggle without agreeing with their conclusion. 
Uh, and the reason for it is this. If you read biographies, whether it's uh, Roland Baton's or Eric Erickson's or um, Eamon Cameron, or, uh, the, these different biographies, that there's been, of course, um, I'm sure, all more yeah. than 100 biographies, even in English, written about Luther. One of the things you see in his early stages um, before 1517 or 1519 is that he's struggling with this problem of how to be holy, how to be uh, truly uh, a man of God. He's an Augustinian canon. He's an Augustinian monk. Uh, but he doesn't seem to be able to overcome his personal sins. So they, one of the solutions that suggested to him was to dig more deeply into Scripture so he becomes a doctor, and in, in, in medieval times, that wasn't just a you know throwaway PhD. That was that was a lot of hard work. So he becomes an expert in in scripture, with his superior hoping that that will ameliorate some of his problems that he's struggling with. But it doesn't, and so he has all of these struggles, and he can't seem to make any headway in his search for holiness. So he says, "Well, what's the problem?" Why can't I do this? And then he says, maybe the problem is not with me. Maybe the problem is with the church. Maybe the problem is a false doctrine that has crept into the church, and it's the doctrine of justification by faith plus works. That is, I have to do all that to go through this sacramental system, and I have to do all this penance. And then, he, the sort of speak, quote-unquote, the light turns on for him. And so he sees the cell of indulgences through that light, and he says, oh, they're terrible things because they're trying to get people to earn their salvation and so forth. And so when he reads Romans and he reads Galatians, he says, oh, I see Paul has been misunderstood. And so now if we can just get back to Paul, St. Paul, and what he teaches, then we'll see that justification is by faith alone. And uh, yes, we do have to be holy, but it doesn't affect our eternal state before God. So that's kind of the, the struggle that, that Luther was having. Now, I said that I disagree with his solution. What was what's the, What is there to disagree with? Well, the problem, I think, is goes back to this phrase that we discussed earlier, the works of the law. What are the works of the law? What Luther did was he made a implicit uh, equation between what Paul's talking about, the works of the law of the Old Testament, meaning the ceremonial law, the circumcision, all of those things, which Paul clearly declares cannot be the means of our salvation. Luther then extended that to say, oh, the sacramental system of the church, that's the work of the law. Doing penance, that's the work of the law. Uh, obeying the Pope uh, as the supreme head of the church, that's the work of the law. You see? So he identified the things in his time with what Paul was talking about in the first century, and that's how he gets to his conclusion that justification must be a declaration by God, by faith alone, and it has nothing to do with works. And so, uh, anyway, that's how you get. And so since ever, ever since that time, that's the way people have thought about, uh, have thought about justification. Yeah, and it, it works. You know, when you think of those three stages, beginning is believing in God, accepting the reality of God by faith and baptism, becoming a part of the family, and then now stage two, living it out in holiness, and then as you grow in that, you recognize 
that really the bottom line is love as we're changed. There are three images of the Father in those three stages, Ken. You know, the first one is creator. You begin with, I recognize God as the source of everything, and you mm -hmm. come in. And then when you start looking at our our infallibility, as, Paul, as Luther was, you see God as a judge uh, mm -hmm. looking at our lives, our sinfulness. And so we're mm -hmm. called to deal with that. Now, Luther, one way to deal with that is to say, well, I'm just saved by the righteousness of Christ that covers me, and I don't need to deal with God as judge anymore. And so you end up back at stage one. The third stage is where Christ was trying to draw us to is seeing God as Father, as a loving Father. Mm -hmm. right. And to me, that defines, helps us see this issue of works of the law. You know, you and I both have children, Ken, and uh, we, have, we set up rules for our children that they need to do. You know, and if they do those, if my son cuts the grass, he's going to get his 15 bucks, okay? Or if he obligates me to pay him the 15 bucks. Or yeah. if he, he's going to go with us to church, he's going to do a variety of things. He, you know, that's what he ought to do. He's already through stage one because he understands I'm his father. He believes I'm his father. So he's through <laughs> stage one. He's in the family. But yeah. now there's stages two and three. And we hope he gets to stage three, which is he's already cleaned up his act, but now it's filial relationship with his father yeah, and mother. Exactly. That's we want him we to want. get yeah. there to see us that. But he could stop everything and believe that, well, all I've got to do are these lists of works that my dad has given me to do. And if I do these things, then my, God, my dad has, is obligated to give me what I've earned. And this is where I think Luther misunderstood. He, on the one hand, he was right. And what was he right about? The fact that it's so easy for Christians, Catholic, Protestant, no matter what, to become legalistic, to become Pelagian. But the church has officially rejected that Pelagianism. We cannot be saved by works. That's, that was Pelagius's error back in the time of Augustine. Um, but again, what, he, what the mistake he made was that he, he thought that was the church's teaching, and it wasn't the church's teaching. And so the church is calling us to that filial intimacy with, with God that you're talking about. So the, when he says, when Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So, Ken, what is the distinction that Paul is making in that verse, which then defines what we understand by this, con this combat between works and faith, and what should we take from that? Well, I think uh, that's a great uh, verse to point us to because I, I love the way he puts the question was it from works of the law that you received the Spirit? In a Catholic understanding of salvation, that's what it means to be to be saved initially through baptism, is to receive the Spirit. And it's interesting that it's not, I don't think, an accident that as Paul begins the chapter this way, so as he gets toward the end of the chapter, this is in verse uh, 27, I believe, chapter 3, verse 27. He comes back and he says... Um, as many of you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. What is it? What does baptism do? Well, it gives us Jesus Christ, and that also then gives us, you might say, the seed of faith, and that faith 
then needs to grow into the second stage that you're talking about, holiness, and then eventually uh, to love. So Paul's question back in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 3, is did this process begin, this this, uh, drinking of the Spirit, as he says in 1 Corinthians, did it begin because you gave obedience to the law as Gentiles, to the Jewish law, or was it because you heard about Jesus Christ and you received him into your life? So he says, well, in the same way that you began is the way that you must be completed. That's what he goes on in verse 3 to say, uh, thus also are you ignorant of the fact that having begun by the Spirit, do you now expect to be made complete by the flesh? In other words, by your own power? No. It's only by God's grace that you uh, continue to do that. Ken, let me draw a parallel with that to another key verse from Ephesians chapter 2 that deals with almost the exact same stuff. Paul is writing to a different group of people, to a different group of people he's preached to, to a different group of people that he knows their faith, he, he knows their love. Uh, in chapter 2, beginning with verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, again, as you said, Ken, the context is that they did not receive the Spirit and the new life in Christ because of any kind of good works or ritualistic obedience that they may have done back when they were pagans. When they were pagans and lost, and because they kind of started doing good things, God rewarded them with new life. No. While they were yet still lost as pagans, God in his grace touched them, brought them to knowledge to Jesus Christ, gave them the gift of faith. They returned to him by this grace, and now that they're here, they're called to live holy and loving lives. Well, exactly, and that's why I wish I could just proclaim from the rooftops and you know put a big banner out for all of our Protestant Christian friends to understand that the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, the present catechism, says that we can do nothing to merit the grace that's given to us in baptism. In other words, baptism is the beginning of the Christian life. And so by that sacrament of baptism, we're given forgiveness of our uh, original sin and of our uh, personal sins, whatever we've committed to that point. Uh, and we're given grace, we're given the Spirit, we're given the right of privilege of being members of the church. So that it, that's the beginning of grace in our lives. And the Catechism says, in categorical terms, we can do nothing to merit that beginning stage. And that's what Paul is saying in the text, you beautiful text in Ephesians that you uh, that your point is to. But he goes on to say, but we are his workmanship. He's still working on us to be created more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. You know, this gets us to what does, is meant by faith. Um, and faith and believing are two different things. Hmm. You know, to believe that God is the creator, that he is our judge, that he is our father is one thing. Faith involves all three stages. That's the point. That the Catholic understanding of faith, as we receive it from the teachings of our Lord Jesus, proclaimed all through the the Bible, 
through the early church fathers, the teachings are that faith is more than a mental assent to the reality of God. That's the beginning. And in the time that Paul was writing Galatians and Ephesians, almost all the Christians came into the church as adults. And so they had come, been brought by grace out of their pagan settings or their legalistic Jewish settings, had recognized our Lord Jesus uh, as their Savior, and through their acceptance of Christ as Savior, were then invited to be baptized. At that point, baptism was the visible uh, expression of the faith that they had received by grace. But early in the church, very early, it was recognized as entire families come, that this grace that so changes us needs to be a gift for infants so that the mm-hmm. grace could then bring them into the family that would then flourish through catechesis into a faith by which they would then confirm what had happened in baptism. That was the normal, yeah. which is still yeah. the truth. Adult, non-baptized adults who come to the church aren't just baptized. That baptism right. comes through catechesis so that the church recognizes as adults that they have they believe in God, they believe the creed, they believe the truth of the church, and then baptism becomes that sacramental expression of that grace. But their infant children come in long before they can understand, but because we recognize that it all comes from grace. Yeah, just like it just like it was by grace that, that Isaac and the children of Israel were included in Abraham's family, because uh, circumcision and baptism are for both. You know, it's also, a verse came to mind when you mentioned this distinction between belief and faith. Um, You know, James talks about this in chapter 2 when he's talking about the the issue of justification. And he asked the question, do you believe that there is one God? You do well. Well, the demons believe that and tremble. It's not just enough to believe that God is one. And he goes on, of course, in the point that James is making in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 is precisely the point that faith alone does not justify. And he says that. In fact, it's the only place in Scripture where the words faith alone actually occur. He says in verse 24, Do you see then that a man is justified from works and not from faith alone? Oh, Ben, now, Well, I was just going to say that if people... um. You know, if people read the Bible superficially, they'll say, well, there's a contradiction between James and Paul. But there's not, precisely because they're talking about different things about works of the law. The works of the law that Paul's talking about is the ceremonial law, it's the law of circumcision, which the Jews wanted to have the Gentiles obey, which Paul says isn't necessary. But where Paul is talking about, I mean, excuse me, where James is talking about faith excuse me, about works, he's talking about works that justify the works that come from faith. Do you see the difference? One is works that attempt to be in the place of faith. The other is works that come from faith. And that's the same kind of thing that Paul talks about later in Galatians that you pointed us to earlier. Living holiness is really living by the works of faith. You know, the reason you brought those James passages, and when you look at what you just read from James, in light of the, the, the three stages of the journey, um, mm-hmm. that believing is stage one. And if you look at it for the, through James's eyes, it, it's, a, it's a dire warning to Christians who think that 
merely believing in the reality of God is all that is necessary. Hmm. Or even that I, I accept Jesus as the Son of God, as if that's yeah. it. Yeah, because yeah. James is saying that belief, that mental reality, that acceptance of the, the existence of a creator who even loves you, that must change our lives. Because if it doesn't yes. change our lives, that belief is dead. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen this in Protestantism. I've seen it in the Catholic Church, Catholics that believe but end up only doing, quote, works of the law, unquote. They believe mm. that I was baptized, I do my church duties, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. eat fish on Friday, uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. contracept, therefore yeah, yeah. I'm good. And the point yeah. is, no, that's the beginning. And you can yeah. misuse those wonderful practices that the church gives us intended to draw us into holiness, but you can misuse those in the same way that the Jews misused circumcision and think yeah. that that was all that was necessary without growing in holiness and love. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, in, in that, of course, the consummation of our relationship with God is, as you say, is to be perfected in love. So it's not enough just to believe in the mere sense of acknowledge. This is why our Lord says at the in the in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about loving your enemy, he says that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And how is the heavenly Father perfect? Well, because he doesn't discriminate between the evil and the good. That is, the people, he doesn't discriminate between the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives his reign to all. This is in, in the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so... What he's saying is that we have to love like the Heavenly Father loves. And it's amazing that this is exactly what Paul says in Galatians itself. Because if you read chapter 3 in the context of the whole epistle, we, go, we come back again to chapter 5 where he says that it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or non-Jew, Jew or Gentile. He says what matters is love. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything or matters, but faith working through love. Yeah. In other words, faith, the belief, stage one, becomes through the work of, chapter, of, uh, of say, stage two, the holiness stage, yeah. and it consummates in love, which is the third stage that you that you've outlined for us. Faith working through love, that in the end is what matters. You know, you drew us back to the Sermon on the Mount for a moment, and what the, the, the section that came to mind after the one that you talk about perfection, he says, hey, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. There's great depth in that section. The knowing, the intimacy of Jesus Christ. You know, the, lots of people claim to believe in God, Lord, Lord, and they might be proclaiming it on television and radio and in books yeah. and from pulpit. But does God know them? 
Does God know them? How do we see? It's through our growing in perfection of holiness and loving that God knows us in the intimacy of growing deeper in Jesus Christ. Well, and this is one of the things that, that has just been so enriching to me personally in, in being a Catholic. Now, you know, we as Catholics, are, we hear very often, and rightly so, that we shouldn't judge others. The Lord says on his own, don't judge that you, that you may not be judged. But that doesn't mean that we are not also called to discern truth and error, right? We're not supposed to judge people. But when I do listen to various preachers, especially the health and wealth gospel yeah. preachers on the radio, I I must confess I'm, I recoil from this kind of, because our Lord said, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's those who know their own poverty of spirit, who know their need of God, who are humble enough to admit, like the thief on the cross, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. This is true Christianity. This is truly knowing God. It's not amassing wealth. It's not being healed of every physical disease. And it's the Catholic Church that holds this wonderful treasury, this wonderful repository of, uh, repository of deep spirituality that says, you know, that even in the midst of our spiritual poverty, we know we are blessed because God is our loving Father. You know, I have the same abhorrence for that health and wealth gospel, which is running rampant today, because essentially uh, they've redirected a new stage two and three. They, they agree with stage one, believe in God, but instead of focusing on holiness and simplicity and humility and love, they've redirected yeah. another direction that's really a self-focused direction. If you believe in God, stage one, you'll get everything you need. He'll bless yeah, you, yeah. he'll fill you, uh, you know, and it goes on and on, and, and I don't necessarily want to read into their motives as filling their own pockets, but... As Paul was saying here, he wasn't setting aside the need to be obedient in the church. He was saying that what's most important behind all that is your love for one another, your That's obedience right. to Christ, and living out your faith in holiness and in love. Thanks, Ken. Uh, we didn't get to Abraham. Maybe we'll get him next week, okay? Okay, sounds good. We'll continue. But look at Abraham next week as a model of faith. Was he just a model of faith alone, or was it his expression of obedience, living that faith out in surrender to God that brought him his intimacy with God? Again, Ken, thank you for joining us. And all of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Go to deepinscripture.com. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. We'd love to hear from you. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.